Dead characters do not yield spin-offs. I have a million points. <laughs> On a scale of one to five sexist surgery machines. You are the Yoda of abdominal tumors. This is Serious Business. Greetings, this is Serious Business, and that's just like your opinion, man. And uh, I'm Jeff, your host for this week's Coen Brothers-themed episode. Woohoo! Yeah. And I've got a super awesome panel with me. Including Rob, our resident Coen Brothers superfan. Rob, how's it going? Oh God! Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm I'm painting right. you early in this episode. Uh, all right. Branded uh, with a title. Conform to my predisposition. <laughs> uh, uh, I am good. Good. Super good. Super good. Mm-hmm. Better be. Yes. I don't know why I said that, but um, I, I am actually glad to hear that you are super good, uh, especially out there on the warmer coast. So, Rob, what is your favorite Coen's Brothers movie and why? Um, man. Briefly, why? It's I know, like I choosing know why. one of my children. Um, <laughs> I think uh, Miller's Crossing is in like my top three movies of all time. All time. All time. It's a very, I, I think, like, if you took the pantheon of sort of Cohen stuff, it would be considered minor Cohen. But I just think it's it's their most rewarding movie. Every time you watch it, you notice something different. And I just think it's, it's a classic sort of mob tale, but told in the sort of goofy, irreverent style of the Coens. And, um, yeah, I think it's great. You know, it's kind of weird. When I watch that movie, Tom reminds me of the Doctor. <laughs> Like Doctor Who. Really? Yeah, like Doctor Who. And uh, huh. I'll, I'll elaborate on that maybe a little bit later. But Rob, what, if anything, are you drinking this fine evening? Oh, I'm drinking life-giving whiskey. Uh, <laughs> very nice. Mm-hmm. I like what you did there. Is this uh, your classic Canadian import? <laughs> uh, no, actually, I haven't had that in a while. I'm actually been on an Evan Williams kick lately, so I've been drinking that. And uh, I've also added uh, life-giving ginger ale as well. So. <laughs> That's a smart move. Yeah. Can't, can't go wrong with a life-giving ginger ale. Uh, so moving on, we got <laughs> <laughs> moving on, we got John. John, how's it going? Going well, Jeff. Going well. Glad to hear it. Uh, John, what is your favorite Coen Brothers movie, and uh, why? I don't know. I apologize if this is like a a, a, you know the the popular answer, but I have to go with Big Lebowski. Well, you, I mean, there isn't really a not popular Coen Brothers favorite. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, I could I could see there being more obscure ones, but I don't think you can be. Yeah, I, I can't. Any, I, I can't be all like punk rock like Rob. Mm-hmm. What Miller's Crossing yeah. is not <laughs> punk rock. Miller's Crossing, every film student loves if, Miller's Crossing. If I if I had said like intolerable cruelty, that would be punk rock. <laughs> right. Or the Lady Killers, or something like that. Or a that. serious man. But uh, I see, I see what John's getting at. Uh, yeah, well, I don't think anyone would begrudge okay. Lebowski as a choice, unless they Too were good. unless they were a nihilist. <laughs> yes, <laughs> unless they believed in nothing. Mm-hmm. What, if anything, are you drinking this fine evening? Uh, I too am drinking uh, precious life-giving whiskey. Mm-hmm. Uh, is yours of the Canadian variety? Uh, no, mine is of the uh, Tennessee Jack Daniels variety. Uh, nice. And rounding out the panel, we got Michelle. Michelle, how's it going? It's going pretty well, Jeff. Glad to hear it. Michelle, what is your favorite Coen Brothers movie? Uh, it definitely has to be The Big Lebowski. There's so much tradition with us wrapped into it. Yeah, and that's true. We watch it every single year, mm-hmm. uh, no fail. So, I don't know. It has a special place in my heart. Mm-hmm. I wish I wish I could say that I was drinking a white Russian right now. But yeah. I- I yeah. I couldn't make it out to the liquor store to get the ingredients. It's too damn cold here. It is too damn cold here. I blame Rob. <laughs> God, Rob. <laughs> you left, and now the sun has gone. Yeah, uh, that's how it works. That is how it works. Uh, so, Michelle, what, if anything, are you drinking this fine evening? I am not drinking whiskey. I am drinking water, mm-hmm. and it is delicious. I am somewhat envious of your water. I must say, because oh, yeah? I have been spending the past several minutes nursing a very heavy white Russian. Oh, <laughs> yay! Good job, I yeah. was waiting for one of us to be drinking that. I'm wearing my bathrobe. Oh, nice! Uh, doing, I'm, I'm doing it right. Which is all ironic, because I actually don't even like the Big Lebowski that much. I like it, don't get me wrong. But I'm not, you know, 
I don't, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't revere it the way some people revere it, I think. Sure. Uh, however, I am in the spirit of uh, the Day of the Dude, and for, for people who do not know, the Day of the Dude is a holiday in early March that is celebrated by Big Lebowski fans all over the country, uh, involving basically a religious practice. Uh, it's very sacred, it's very holy. profound, holy, Hallowed. reverent, um, irreverent. Mm -hmm all at the same time, and basically people do things like go bowling and watch the Big Lebowski and drink White Russians. Now, yeah. even though I said I wasn't the biggest Big Lebowski fan in the world, I love bowling, I love bathrobes, and I love White Russians. <laughs> are, it's, it's just, it's just, it's, it's adult chocolate milk. It's you're, like, you're an aberration then, like, how do you like those things and then not like the movie? Well, no, but that's that's the hard part to explain to people. It's that I don't dislike the movie. I just don't. I watch it and I like it, and I'm kind of done with it at that point. I don't well, need to quote it for days on end. Um, you know what's? Sense. You know what occurs to me when you say that, Jeff, is that at no point throughout the course of the year do I say, you know what I want? A white Russian. Mm. You know what we should do this weekend? Go bowling. <laughs> I never want to do any of those things at any other point throughout the year. Yet, when March comes along, I'm counting the weeks until Day of the Dude. Mm -hmm. So it's this, it's a lot like Christmas where it doesn't apply the rest of the year, but when it gets within sight, you get very excited for it. And it's, it's a huge landmark event because, you know, there's not a whole there's not a whole lot of other stuff going on in March. That's true. So, March, particularly in this part of the country, which we have already determined is not the best part of the country for March. Uh, March is just not, right. it's not great here, and it is fantastic to have such a wonderful holiday right in the middle of New England mud season. Um, so uh, three of us did celebrate Day of the Dude, uh, and uh, it, was, it was a great time. It was just fantastic. It was awesome. Mm -hmm. And despite the fact that I have just talked about how subjectively I might not be crazy about The Big Lebowski, if I look at that movie from an objective standpoint, it is unquestionably brilliant. It's a movie that writes circles around the, the genre of comedy and, and does so with a lot of finesse. So I am extremely impressed by it, even if I'm not crazy about it. So I guess I want to ask people when they first saw that movie and if their opinion of it has changed since then, because it does seem rather commonplace for that to happen. Uh, let's start with Rob on that one. Rob, do you remember the first time you saw The Big Baski? I do. I, I rented it with a friend, maybe early college. I had already heard a lot about it, but uh, I'd never, never, never seen it, so we rented it and watched it, and like... I guess we laughed a few times, but it was mostly just in dead silence that we watched this because we—I don't think we could really grasp what it was trying to do, mm -hmm. and we were sort of confounded by that. And uh, the movie ended, and I was like, "Well, that was a thing," and it was sort of interesting, and certainly unlike other movies that I, I had seen. But that's sort of like, you know, that's that. And then I caught it again on cable, like months later, <laughs> in in the middle somewhere. And uh, I was like, oh, all right, I'll, I'll just leave this on. And as, as soon as you sort of let go of sort of, like, figuring it out as a movie or trying to, like, pigeonhole it, it instantly works. And I remember, like, I was crying. I was laughing so hard at one point, which didn't happen the first time I had seen it. Uh, I was, like, watching a completely different movie. So it's definitely sort of like a knuckleball of a movie in that when you it comes at you in a funny way and it isn't until after you've absorbed it, that I at least appreciated it and really was uh, affected by the humor and sort of the complexity of it. Mm -hmm. John and Michelle, did you guys find you had similar experiences? I think we both saw it at the same time for the first time. It was like 2004, maybe we'd gone to visit a friend in Georgia and uh, let's just say that her parents were very well off and we were able to watch the movie in a screening room. So it was basically like a, a mini movie theater. And this was, for me at least, this was at a time like really before I had developed any sort of taste in movies. So very similar to Rob, you know, like after we watched it, it was like, all right, that was fine, I guess. And I think the whole thing... <laughs> I think by the time like Jackie... Treehorn, like they end up at Jackie Treehorns. I was like, all right. Yeah, it come was on. just like, sailing yeah. over yeah, yeah. over our heads. Mm -hmm. And then when we started 
uh, when our friend George had started the Day of the Dude tradition maybe three years ago. Then I sort of watched it with a different, you know, with a little bit more sophisticated film taste. And I started, you know, I could appreciate what it was doing a little bit more. And the humor and the characters clicked for me. And then I really, then I really enjoyed it and sort of saw the genius in it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the only thing that I think was solid for me, even the first time I saw it, because I very much had a similar experience where the first time I saw it, I was just like, what is going on? <laughs> I, was, I was too young to appreciate the uh, the irony at play, but John Goodman was still yes. hilarious to me. Even the first time you watch yeah. the movie, he's the most accessible, sort of traditional comedic portion of that movie and yeah and even now it's funny because that hasn't deteriorated it hasn't been like as i've aged with the movie the rest of the movie has gotten funnier but john goodman has stayed as funny he's still a very important funny part of what they were doing yeah i think he's probably still my favorite character in spite of this walter is probably like one of my favorite characters of anything ever like top 10 (laughs) characters of all time i mean he's got some of the best lines in the movie He's he's a complicated character too, even though he's you know he's got obviously anger issues, aggression issues, but he has deep caring for his friends and the relationships and what's going on yeah. in this movie. So and he's very religious. And his exes. Dog. Yeah, very religious. <laughs> don't roll. It's a fucking paper. show dog. You can't afford it. It's Harold Fallout. It's got papers. <laughs> uh, what are you um, talking about taking a bowling? I'm not renting its shoes. I'm not buying it a fucking beer. <laughs> it's not taking your fucking turn, dude. Uh, it, okay, um, sorry. <laughs> well, the, the quotability of the movie is part of its sort of timelessness that mm-hmm. uh, uh, Jeff, you were just getting at, and that uh, it might be one of the most rewatchable movies I've ever heard of. Mm-hmm. Or experience, you know what I mean? Yeah, that's not uncommon for Coen Brothers movies because their scripts are so dense. Right. Um, and The Big Lebowski is absolutely no exception. Uh, on top of that, it just keeps borrowing from all these weird, like, subsections of culture. Mm-hmm. Like, and whenever the dude gets knocked out, there's always some, like, crazy, obscure <laughs> musical that's, like, filled with old <laughs> cinematic references and, like, right. bizarre kind of... Looney Tunes esque um, pornography musicals, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. so you you just have to admire that, and it's it's one of those movies that you can't possibly imagine someone who's not a genius creating. Right, like it takes a very unique mind to create something like that, <laughs> or set of minds in this case. I don't even know how you pitch the Big Lebowski. Yeah as a movie because at any certain point I mean you're you're completely enthralled the whole time but mm-hmm. at any certain point you're like I, I don't I don't know if I could describe this in a, a cinematic way that you know that says movie but it absolutely is an extremely cinematically literate movie it's mm-hmm. um and it was mind-blowing I forgot who brought it up to me but the big old Basque is basically uh, a noir story mm-hmm but operates in a way in which none of the characters are aware that they're in a noir story. Mm-hmm. It's subversive in that way. And uh, there's only one moment in which and I think it I think it's actually become like the funniest moment of the of the movie for me. There's one moment where you think the dude actually has one up on this plot and he, he he's you know he's quick thinking and proactive and it's when he's uh, at Jackie Treehorn's house <laughs> and uh, he sees uh, Treehorn take a phone call, write a note, and then excuse himself for a moment. He jumps <laughs> off the couch and uh, does the pencil shading trick <laughs> and uh, realizes that there isn't any actual clever information, but it's a very lewd drawing of an erection, which is like a total subversion of like noir tropes, right? Like, because in a noir story, that would actually yeah. be a clue. Right. But in this case, and we see it all over, like the dude's face is like, all right, what what is actually going on here? Why would someone do that? And why am I here? And what is going on? Yeah. <laughs> and the movie just keeps rolling from there. But I think that that moment sort of encapsulates the absurdity that is projected onto sort of the noir 
sort of model that makes the Big Lebowski work so well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that scene definitely is a microcosm for the entirety of the movie. I, I really like it. So, uh, in in light of those sorts of moments, uh, before we move on to other Coen Brothers movies, I want to do a brief round robin of favorite moments from the oh, Big shit. Lebowski. It's actually been like maybe two years since I've seen it. Oh yeah, it's a long time for me. I've never done Day of the Dude. Oh, you'll have um, to you'll have out. to celebrate with us next year, mm-hmm. or not, yep. man? Whatever. I, I think... <laughs> <laughs> well played, uh, Michelle. Well played. <laughs> All right, so let's do favorite moments, starting with Michelle. Michelle, go. When Smokey is over the line. <laughs> All right, John. Uh, I like at the beginning in the bowling alley when the dude is explaining the story to Walter. <laughs> Oh, man. It's a line in the sand. (laughs) (laughs) All right, uh, let's move on to Rob. Um, I love Phil Seymour Hoffman's face when uh, Bunny (laughs) offers to suck the dude's cock. God damn it, that was (laughs) amazing (laughs) (laughs) bit of background acting. Yes. Uh, All right, fine. I'll go with uh, no one fucks with the Jesus. Another good oh, moment. man. Yeah. Let's uh, move on to Michelle. The dude's face when Donnie's ashes are just covering his beard and his mustache at the oh, end. It's a good one. It's yeah. a good one. John? This is what happens, Larry! <laughs> <laughs> uh, the destruction of a car. Yeah. Oh, man. That's great. Uh, Rob? Um, I, this might be cheating, but to piggyback a little bit on... Uh, Michelle's point. I do love the hug, the forced hug at the end of the movie, which is sort of the (laughs) emotional climax of the film. That uh, it's not funny, but um, it sort of just ties the whole movie together. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a good one. Just like the rug. Yes, it's like the rug. I'm gonna do uh, Jeffrey, love me, (laughs) which is a moment that uh, that happens to all of us Jeffs in our lifetime. So back to Michelle. Uh, I do really like, at, at the very beginning of the movie, when he's at the supermarket and he smells and takes a sip of the half and half before he pays with a 67 cent check. On, that's, that's on very September dude, 11th. That's very dude-esque. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. That's true. That is on September 11th. That's really weird. Mm-hmm. All right, John? I like when he's driving. He's driving in his <laughs> shitty car and he's singing along and he drops the joint in his crotch. Yeah. Yeah. And he crashes. And it discovers an important piece of evidence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A very important piece of evidence. All right, Rob. <laughs> oh shit. Uh, I love um, sort of the the squaring off with the uh, private investigator. Oh yeah. Side Wad's house mm-hmm. and uh, the clarification of that's not his girlfriend. It's his. It's his fucking lady friend. <laughs> <laughs> you you want to share notes? You know. Share, <laughs> share some notes. Uh, I'm gonna do the landlord's interpretive dance. <laughs> oh, such a good one. Uh, uh, Michelle? Mm. Uh-oh. I know, I'm might starting be, to... Might be starting to run dry. Um, I do okay. I do like Maud's um, painting scene. Oh, yeah. So, where she's flying around. So, that's pretty pretty good. The sound effects in that scene mm-hmm. are fantastic. John? The money exchange within the car, and oh, Walter yeah. rolls out, and he's going to... Grab one of them and beat it, beat it out of them. <laughs> Money. That's pretty good. Rob? I think the sheriff's mug hitting <laughs> is one of the biggest laughs yeah. to this day. It's just perfect. Perfect yeah. in its absurdity. Yeah. And it also looks like it really hurts. It, which, <laughs> it looks really painful. Which helps the laugh along, but it's also one of those moments where it's like, that would, like a ceramic mug right to the brow, that would uh, that'd leave a mark. Mm-hmm. So, yes. Yeah, definitely. I'm going to go with the fight scene at the end oh, yeah. with the Germans. And I would say specifically the fact that one of them has a sword and that the moment the fight begins, they basically it's, just it's run like in drop. and drop the sword. Yeah. <laughs> I always found that really funny. All right, uh, Michelle? So when the dude meets the big Lebowski in the first place and he's telling him what a deadbeat he is and he's, you know, he's ruining wasting his life. And so he's screaming at him and he leaves the office and he just tells Brant that he can take anywhere in the house <laughs> yeah. and just takes off. But... <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. John? A little bit of an echo off of that one when later on in the movie when the dude gets dragged into the limo, like, hey, there's a beverage here, man. Oh, man. 
There's a beverage involved. Uh, yeah, no, that's really good. Rob? I'm going to piggyback off that one and go to his explanation of what's going on to the Big Lebowski and try to explain. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, trying to explain the royal we. That's the scene that hooked me again once I watched it that second time. That scene is hilarious. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's pretty great. So I'm, I'm actually going to cut us off there because I think people get the idea that this filled with fantastic moments. And that's why objectively I say this movie is, is brilliant and incredible, even, again, if, uh, if I can only take it in, in small doses. But yeah, I mean... I can think of at least three or four other moments. The, the toe scenes, for instance, and uh, pretty much everything with the Germans is funny. I think the, your money's down there somewhere. Let me take another look. It's really good. Yeah. So it's it's definitely one of those movies that just has no shortage of incredibly brilliant, memorable moments. And on that note, we're going to take a quick break, and then when we come back, we'll talk about more Coen Brothers movies. So we will be our beat. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, what condition my I woke up this morning with the sundown shining in I found my mind in a brown paper bag But then I tripped on a cloud and fell eight miles high I told my mind And we're back! During the intro of this uh, episode, I talked a little bit about how I feel like Tom from Miller's Crossing is kind of like the doctor I want to touch on that a bit more, but before we do, you know, Rob, you mentioned that was your favorite Coen Brothers movie. I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit, maybe provide a brief summary of what the movie is for people that haven't seen it, and uh, talk about why it's so great. So, Miller's Crossing, if you have not seen it, is a Prohibition-era mob story. It focuses on Tom, who is a consigliere to the Irish gang, I will say, in Man, this is going to make me look bad. I'm not sure if they ever identify what city they're in, which is part of the abstraction that the Coens sort of subtly put in a lot of their movies. But uh, he serves O'Banion, which is actually a, a name of a real gangster from Chicago. So it is sort of alluded to that it is Chicago, but he, he faces off against a fictional Italian mob boss who is inching in on sort of Italian territory. And when it is revealed that Tom is having an affair with O'Banion's mistress, or girlfriend, I should say, who O'Banion intends to marry, Tom gets sort of caught in between the Italian gang and the Irish gang that he used to serve and plays a very high-stakes chess match in between the two gangs. So he comes out on top. And it's pretty awesome. I love it because, unlike what I was talking about with The Big Lebowski, which, which is a noir story in which all the characters are unaware that they're in a noir story. Miller's Crossing is very much the opposite, where it's in like a very sort of high-stakes gangland movie, and it's very cranked to 11, Uh, so much so that it's actually sort of dense and sometimes hard to follow. In fact, I had a similar experience watching Miller's Crossing for the first time, where I was like, this is good, but I don't really know if I understand all what's going on with the plot. And it actually took a couple of tries afterwards watching it to realize like how actually well thought out it is. It is still sort of silly and funny at times, but it, it definitely is in the vein of Blood Simple. It's violent. It, there, there is some gore attached to some of, the, some of the gangling violence that they depict. So, yeah, it's sort of like a happy Coen Brothers Venn diagram where we're getting sort of the silliness and the humor, but we're all, they're also treat the violence in a very sort of startling way not like no country for old men like nihilistic violence but at huh. least violence in terms of i can't show <laughs> i can't show this to like children which mm-hmm. i guess you wouldn't show any coen brothers movie to a child but probably it's, should. I don't know. Oh, well, here's what i want to say the goofiness does not encroach on the violence the violence is very convincing and up there with other gangland movies. It's, the it's goofiness very, is definitely a byproduct of wit as opposed to a byproduct yeah. of slapstick or kind of... But the, nah, it's not always wit. There is there are points where some of that Coen Brothers absurdity I think leaks in. There's there's a point where Tom is supposed to get roughed up by one of the, uh, <laughs> yeah. the Italian guys and Tom sort of, he was not a physical person, he, he's a thinker, which is one of the sort of themes of the film, but in a rare sort of 
move, he takes a chair and hits this guy who's supposed to rough him up in the face. And the guy who he knows is so surprised. He's, he's like, Jesus, Tom, and he leaves. <laughs> and Tom is just like standing there holding a chair and has no idea what is going to happen. And then, of course, the guy returns with like two friends and they beat the shit out of Tom. But there is like this weird moment where you're kind of not sure what kind of movie you're watching. And mm. I think the Coen brothers are really good at sort of bending that genre in moments and not so much so that we ever lose our suspension of disbelief, but we it does offer something fresh and new, even though they're operating within very well-tilled sort of uh, genres. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a fantastically funny moment. Just, Jesus Christ, Tom. <laughs> he's like, he, he, he looks so, like, honestly... <laughs> Not physically, but emotionally wounded by what has yeah. just happened. Yeah, right. It's yeah. like, you know what's supposed to happen here. I'm supposed to rough you up. You're not supposed to hit me right. in the face with a chair. <laughs> Come on, man. But yeah, uh, that that movie also does have incredibly dense, rapid-fire, very witty dialogue like most Coen Brothers movies. There are several scenes that, as you were saying earlier, you can watch multiple times because a single sentence will contain three witty or important points. Oh my just, god. They just yeah. they pump them out really fast. Some of the plot stuff, they treat like so, like casual conversation. And in this rapid-fire, old-timey delivery. And yeah, that makes it hard to follow at some points if you sort of have a... For us modern watchers of things coming out of Hollywood now, this is much more 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 dense than yeah. a, uh, a You know I I have <clears throat> to confess I've I watched Miller's Crossing I don't know, it's gotta be four or five years now. When I first watched it, I have to admit I was kind of underwhelmed by it. Like Rob had been like really pumping it up for like months ahead of time. You gotta rent. I mean, you gotta check. Like Rob, of course, he owned it. And he let he let me borrow it, and for the longest time, like I held on to it. I didn't get around to watching it, and then I, I when I finally watched it, I didn't I didn't quite get it. But I think that that was before I had rewatched The Big Lebowski, and that had sort of clicked into place. Mm-hmm. So now I think like I'd like to go back and rewatch it now, having a better appreciation of what the Coen brothers do and what their style is and everything and Mm -hmm. having an understanding of the Big Lebowski and Fargo. Like, I'd like to go back and watch it again with a more, like, a a better understanding of the Coen brothers and I bet, I bet I would like it more. Yeah, I would definitely say that's a distinct possibility because it's one of those movies that sort of drops you in the middle of stuff and doesn't really slow down there's no there's no character who is like are you saying that this, and, you know like serves the audience understanding right. it's just very no holds barred pedal to the metal in terms of its plot and the other thing too is that you might i realized that and this is one of the rewarding parts of watching it again and again it's so thick with period slang that sometimes you don't even realize what the character is getting and not because it's too fast or whatever. It's just like, I don't know what that word means. I don't know. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? What does a <laughs> twist mean? What is, you know. So all these different things are happening. The density of it and sort of the authenticity of it is uh, just pedal to metal the whole time. So it does take, a, I would say, a couple of views to really appreciate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think my favorite scene or my favorite little bit of dialogue is relatively early in the movie when uh, a character walks in on Tom when he's asleep, or when he's basically lying down on a couch with his eyes shut, and, and mm-hmm. they say, like, wake up, Tom, and he goes, I am awake, and then the character says, your eyes are shut, and then Tom goes, who are you going to believe? And <laughs> and that that happens in, like, under five seconds, but that that's an example of, like, just how smart this dialogue is constantly. So it's really good. But I want to go back to this idea of Tom as the doctor and explain <laughs> as what, the doctor. I, what I meant there. Basically, as Rob described, it's a movie about two gigantic crime organizations that are at odds with each other, and Tom Reagan, the, the main protagonist, is right in the middle of it. But mm. objectively, when you actually look at his character, there is no rational explanation for why he is in everybody's confidence. And in the, in that movie, he is in everybody's confidence. Like, obviously, he's very good friends from the get-go with the Irish kind of top brass crime lords, but they, like, accept his advice without questioning him. 
And and then later on, he finds himself in exactly the same position with the Italians. He's just sort of in the middle of it all, despite the fact that he lives in this incredibly modest apartment <clears throat> with basically nothing in it. Like he is probably an alien, <laughs> an incredibly an incredibly witty alien that has found himself in the middle of these situations. Because so, so many episodes of Doctor Who are just that. It's like two incredibly powerful factions are fighting, and then this random stranger showed up. Well, I guess we trust him. <laughs> he's, he's really charming uh, and Tom is exactly the same way I don't know I always I always have that comparison in mind for some reason when I watch this movie but I want to move on a bit and talk about something that has bothered me with Coen Brothers movies to be honest no I've seen lots of them. I've seen, I'd say, uh, probably half of them. You know, True Grit, No Country for Old Men, A Serious Man, Fargo, Raising Arizona, uh, Lebowski, as we already talked about, etc. Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? And I think I'm still of the opinion that they don't know how to end a movie. And their endings are unquestionably controversial among fans, particularly No Country for Old Men. That was definitely a movie that got a lot of mainstream attention, not just from the kind of film enthusiast crowd that typically likes Coen Brothers movies. I had a lot of friends who watched No Country for Old Men and were like, that movie was incredible except for the ending because I have no idea what the hell that was. And a lot of their movies are like that. I, I distinctly remember A Serious Man having an ending that... You a Serious to, Man, yeah. You have to be well-versed in biblical allegory to understand the ending of that movie. And even then, it's like, huh, that huh. was unexpected. I want to see, I guess, particularly with Rob, but, but John and Michelle, obviously, if you guys have any thoughts as well, if you feel the same way or if you like the fact that so so much of their work kind of... And I mean, The Big Lebowski is the same way. The Big Lebowski yeah. has a very arbitrary ending. It's just well, like that about wraps her up. That about <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. Do you guys agree, or does anyone want to defend or tell me that I'm just some sort of simpleton? I would say that that definitely holds water. I mean, I have not seen as many Coen Brothers movies as you have, Jeff or or Rob. But based on the movies that I have seen, which would be The Big Lebowski, Fargo, and Miller's Crossing, it's a theory that makes sense to me. Because, like, The Big Lebowski, the first couple times I saw it, it took me a couple times of seeing it to sort of realize that, oh, yeah, I guess everything is mostly wrapped up. The way that it does it is a little fuzzy. They do tie up the loose ends Pretty much, Somewhat, yeah. Um, and you know, Fargo, Fargo, everything ends, but it's same thing. It it seems to sort of end at an odd pace, mm -hmm. you know. There are things that do feel unresolved in Fargo, despite the fact that the main crux of it does seem to get resolved. I don't feel like it takes too much away from my experience of the movies, though. Like even in the Big Lebowski, where it kind of just it it kind of ends. I feel like the whole experience of watching these movies is you're watching a couple, a series of experiences, right? And so I don't feel like just ending really takes too much away from, from my enjoyment of the movies. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense at all? No, that makes yeah. perfect sense, and I actually would agree with that. Despite the fact that I, I sort of mention it as a negative, mm -hmm. it, doesn't, it doesn't bother me too much because the movies are so brilliant otherwise. There's so much invested into them conceptually, and God, I really hate that I'm about to use this word, but I think they are legitimately postmodern works. God <laughs> oh, I, I would agree. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I hate the word postmodern. I hate it as someone who went to a very media-focused school. I really, really don't like the fact that I, I have to legitimately use it here, but they are legitimate examples of postmodern work. They are fully aware of what they're doing at any given time. And that's hard to do well. That's really hard to do well, but they managed to pull it off. So yeah, in, in spite of the fact that I mentioned this kind of ending issue, I don't think it's ever hurt my experience watching one of their movies. It's more just kind of an observation. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I'm going to... I'm gonna I'm gonna be the the lone guy in the corner that says I think they handle endings better than most other filmmakers right mm. now. First of all, before I get into the big meat and potatoes part of the the defense, I would say that Lebowski and Fargo have have some of the more traditional endings of Coen Brothers movies, mm -hmm. especially Big Lebowski. I mean, that's like a story within a story, and then, the, you know, the narrator sort of returns, and, like, 
it feels like more of a bow on unwrapping everything up than most of their movies do. But I would say they've gotten a little more maybe what is considered abstract with their endings, but mm-hmm. I would I would argue that they are truly artists working with filmmaking in that they don't pretend to have answers. They're simply presenting dilemmas or ideas mm-hmm. and wrapping wrapping anything up in a way that's like, oh, in, in this, you know, we see this all the time with popular movies or, or like Love Conquers All or, you know, Stick With Your Principles. All these things sort of like conquer whatever is represented as sort of evil in a movie. But the Coen brothers are not mainstream filmmakers, so they're presenting ideas and as as a visceral sort of like, hey, look at this. Isn't this bad? Isn't this how we react to these things sort of bad? They, they often present very selfish and sort of self-involved characters, which has become sort of a trope for them. But I, I don't know. I, I don't think... I think the ending of No Country for Old Men is great. I think the ending of Serious Man is great. Because it, it's not a period, it's an ellipsis. Because it's still stuff to be figured out. They're not imposing a fairy tale kind of ending on us. Mm-hmm. Or a quote-unquote solution to what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. There's sometimes cautionary tales, like in the case of A Serious Man, which is all about uncertainty. And I'm not familiar with the biblical references that, that Jeff brought up earlier. And I mean, No Country for Old Men, which is is a very hard adaptation from... Carmen McCarthy's book is all about the good old days and the perception that now, you know, that things are getting worse and that they're actually not. And then it takes like a few good people to sort of carry the fire into the next generation, the fire being quote unquote goodness. I think that's all there. I just don't, I don't think it, it doesn't feel like, you know, everyone's hugging and shaking hands at the end, but I don't think that that makes it not an ending. I think it makes it a more sort of rewarding ending when we, you know, the lights come back on in a theater and we're still thinking about it Mm -hmm. and talk about it afterwards. Yeah, I mean, if nothing else, I I would definitely agree with you that their endings make you think. I I perhaps don't give them as much credit because I feel like there isn't quite enough guidance for how you're supposed to think after many of them, but I would rather an ending be too thought-provoking than not thought-provoking enough. So sure. uh, I will I will definitely agree there. I actually, you know, at the uh, during the intros for this particular episode, I did not mention my favorite Coen Brothers movie, but it is Fargo. I love the living crap out of that movie, and I I want to. Yeah, that's a that's a good one there. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the heck you mean? Despite the fact that it's mean. way stereotypical <laughs> at the McDonald's. Um, <laughs> I think. Fargo tickles me in just the right way. I've watched so much Law and Order and so much in, you know, crime <laughs> drama that Fargo is like the pinnacle of satire for the sort of convoluted crime opera that is so popular in fiction, in all mediums, frankly. Oh, jeez. Uh, I also think it coincidentally happens to have probably the best example of a strong female lead in cinema rivaled maybe only by like ripley from aliens or something like that but uh, oh, sure. uh, margie margie well, man is that's a awesome margie is great there's a couple of things about that statement you just made that are strange to me oh yeah <laughs> well first i think ripley is a strong female character yes i agree I guess has a whole other podcast. I have some trepidation about that because I, I don't think the characters in Alien are fleshed out enough for us to be like, oh, okay, these are really strong characters. Mm-hmm. But I think there's also something valuable in the fact that that doesn't happen and she's still sort of the hero. Like, it doesn't matter if she's... Whatever. I, I'm not going to we'll, get We'll leave that as an aside for now. Yeah, but, we'll leave that as an aside. I think we can aside. all agree that Marty I'm pro-Alien Marty. and pro-Ripley. I want to make that clear. <laughs> uh, secondly, one of the things that is really interesting about Fargo is that Margie is like introduced like halfway through the movie, or at least like two-fifths of the way through the movie. Mm-hmm. The structure of Fargo is sort of like a master class in like keeping the audience engaged and is a total, I keep saying this word, but a subversion of like 
a hero's journey or like what we've come to sort of expect from popular movies where we're rooting for characters and we definitely do root for margie and we are sort of tickled by the the criminals and horrified by who's william h macy's character's name jerry lundegaard jerry <laughs> jerry jerry <laughs> hey jerry jerry we're not a we're bank, not a bank jerry. Jerry. Um, <laughs> and you know what i think the Coen brothers could make movies for the next 50 years, and I hope they do. They'll still sort of, Fargo will still sort of be on the top of their crown. It's just so amazing. And it's not even one of my favorite Coen brothers movies, but I watched it on Thanksgiving this last year. And, you know, it, even though it's not sort of my jam in terms of like what movies are, you know, the content or sort of the premise, I can't help but watch it and just be sort of in awe of how incredible it is. Yeah, you're darn tootin'. <laughs> you ask Stan Grossman, he'll tell you the same thing. <laughs> it's uh, my deal here, Wade. <laughs> this, park, this parking lot, this parking garage. <laughs> I, I mean, like, my favorite part of that movie is just, I mean, like I said, I, I just rewatched it, and it's a really dark comic. I mean, it goes, it gets really dark in places. Oh, with, yeah. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, like, my favorite part of that movie is just watching... Jerry Lundegaard squirm and and just oh, want like it's his so uncomfortable. It's like uncomfortably awkward and sort of mm-hmm. tra- oddly tragic. It's funny. I think my favorite part of watching it, you know, just this past year, because I've been watching a ton of Boardwalk Empire in which Steve Buscemi sort of like oh, a yeah. straight man. Mm-hmm. But it was so much fun to watch something and remember be reminded of the fact that he's like the total like weirdo in all these like 90s movies <laughs> and, and he is oh my god he's a showering the fucking face <laughs> he gets the face oh my god oh my god he's just so good mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's just like classic pure Steve Buscemi Awesome. Yeah, and there is an FX uh, series coming out. Which there is. I am yes. Curious about. Yes. I am. I am cautious, though. I'm cautious, but but uh, I will. I will check it out, and I will definitely. I think we we will have to report on it. In a the Coens are producing, I believe. Yep. So they are involved in some way. So that's a good sign. Yeah, and generally, producing in television is very different from producing in film. Producing in television typically means you are very heavily involved in writing. Uh, right. As opposed to film, where it can mean kind of almost anything. Some producers are heavily involved, some are not. So yeah, uh, it could it could end up being excellent. Uh, it's an incredibly odd choice to do this now, and to, really to do it at all, because I feel like Fargo it's pretty perfect as its own. Yeah, single I feel the same way. Like I almost am afraid to watch it because it's so it's such a gem by itself that I don't want you know some sort of like appendix attached to it that might not be as good yeah i uh, i agree that and makes I, sense. I have to admit that i have seen very little in the way of the promotional material so i'm not sure exactly how they're spinning it um does anyone actually know i've seen a couple of the little trailers uh it's basically billy bob thornton saying stuff in voiceover <laughs> o- over like trailer <laughs> yeah over over snow sweeped landscapes mm-hmm. stark snow sweeped landscapes um it looks like they're definitely um hitting the irreverent tone of it more mm-hmm. i don't know i'm scared to watch it not because yeah. i'm pessimistic about it but just because like jeff said fargo is sort of perfect as a film on its own it comes out soon right we'll see uh, it comes this out this year yeah uh, i don't know when all right i'm gonna look it up real quick Kristen okay. editing magic. Oh God, Kristen! This Cut is out the first time I've hearing said. this. Oh really? Yeah, I didn't know there was a Fargo TV show. Yeah. With Billy Bob. Yeah, it's got a hell of a cast. It looks like Martin Freeman's in it. Fucking hey, Martin Freeman. He's in Guys everywhere. You, Dude is everywhere. If you're, an act- if you're an actor, and they say that they're doing a Fargo show, with the Coens producing, you move heaven and earth. So it looks like this show premieres on Tuesday, April 15th. So that's oh, really not, not far away at all. Let's do another episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the cast does look pretty ridiculous. I mean, Billy Bob Thornton, Martin Freeman. Glenn Howard. Uh, wow. Martin Freeman plays a character called Lester 
Migard, which sounds <laughs> uncomfortably close to our racial slur. <laughs> Got Colin Hanks as Deputy Gus Grimley. Or, yeah, Grimley. Wow. Um, so it looks like it's entirely names new are characters. Fantastic. I imagine new, entirely new cast, right? Yeah, yeah, they do have fantastic names. You're right. We've got Stavros Milos, Don Chumpf. Gordon, really? <laughs> Chumpf. Web. What are these? There is a character named Web Pepper, and Greta Grimley. Is a lot of these look like Game of Thrones characters. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's that's what uh, the, the Midwest is like. It's just Game of Thrones. <laughs> Scandinavian. All right, so uh, that about wraps it up for our Cohen Brothers discussion. Uh, we are going to take another quick refill break, and we will be back yes. with Geek of the Week. Okay. I want you to tell me what these fellas looked like. Well, the little guy, he was kind of funny looking. In what way? I don't know, just funny looking. Can you be any more specific? I couldn't really say. He wasn't circumcised. Was he funny looking apart from that? Yeah. So, you were having sex with a little fella then? Uh-huh. Is there anything else you can tell me about him? No. Like I say, he was funny looking. More than most people, even. And we're back. So we're going to end this episode the same way we end every episode of This Is Serious Business, and that is with our Geek of the Week segment, where we talk about things we've been watching, reading, doing, or playing over the past week or two. So uh, let's go ahead and start with Michelle on that one. Michelle, what have you been up to lately? We just watched recently the latest episode of Community, and I'm really, I don't know about you guys, if anybody else is watching it, but I'm really enjoying this season. I'm sad that, like, certain certain things are kind of different. Like, I, I miss Troy already. And the, I miss Troy. I don't miss Pierce at all. No, I, I don't miss Pierce. But I really liked this Meow Meow Beans episode uh, where it was, like, the Logan's like run. You didn't like it? No, I like the was, last one. The... Which one? The one with the books, the yearbook, not the yearbooks. The oh, science yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Meow Meow Beans yep. was two episodes ago at this point, as, okay. of, as of this recording. We, right. Yeah, we just we just watched them back to back, so, okay, so you like the, the chemistry book yeah, one? Yeah, I did not both, like both were pretty. Both were pretty good, but I just feel like everything that I felt was wrong with last season and how I just kind of stopped watching, I, I feel myself going back on a little bit with this season. I'm really, really happy with the way that things are going. Yeah, I would agree with that 100%. Uh, that show, Dan Harmon does add the essential character component to that show. The characters feel like they are doing what they were supposed to be doing, and you can tell that there's a vision for where each one fits within the lives of the other. So I, I would agree with you 100%. And I liked both the textbook episode and the Meow Meow Means episode. Yeah, the textbook episode, I forgot it had that awesome VCR... <laughs> Video game. Bullet, uh, yeah. yeah, pile of bullets. Oh, pile of bullets, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> pile of bullets. Awesome. Um, and I love that weird scene during the credits with the actor. Was, oh, God. It's like, Apple computers, you leave that behind. <laughs> You're going to be the king of the VCR game. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Um, that was great. Nice, very nice. So let's move on to John. John, what have you been up to lately? This week, Batman number 29 came out, which was... Describe it slowly. <laughs> I haven't yet anyway, read it. No, basically, this was the last issue of the second arc of oh, the Zero really? Year. Fuck. Jesus. All right, yep. It, it was actually a big 40-page issue. Is the Riddler in it yet? Yeah, the Riddler was in it. I have, like, an <laughs> interesting... show. <laughs> Spoilers. Thanks for asking that for me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Riddler is starting to come around more. Well, um, I remember you guys were saying this is supposed to be a Riddler arc, and I feel like so much has gone on, and the Riddler yeah. hasn't even shown well, up yet. Well, he's sort of been in the shadows behind the scenes up until now. Now yeah. he's finally made his move against uh, Gotham City, and uh, there's basically a huge rainstorm coming, and the city is flooding, and... The Riddler has killed off all the power of the city, and now he's sort of, like, rigged it up in a way that he collapses the levees or the dam wall, like, the retaining walls of the ocean. So now, like, Gotham is going to be completely submerged underwater and stuff. And they had, like, a filler issue last month. So it's been two months since the last issue. So going back into it, it was kind of, it was a little clunky and slow, but then this weekend... Yeah. I sort of read the last three issues plus 
this current issue all back to back and when they're all take when you read them together like that it reads much better but i mean i am just i am eating that up with a spoon i i think it's definitely my my favorite comic it's your jam okay. yeah totally 110 percent my jam so i'm just just drunk enough to to start saying stuff like this but really like you already had a villain named the joker you really had to do the Riddler too. Come on! <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. I know. I understand. Riddles. Don't go there, Jeff. I'm gonna say. Don't go there. I know. I know. Jeff, I'm gonna save that fight for another day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Jeff, and the Riddler is a good character. He how is. many? How many titles are in the the new Fifty Two? Fifty Fifty Two. Actually, knowing DC, there's probably more. Can, I think I think it's changed now because they've ended up canceling some. See, I was right. Uh-huh. Can I do a quick counter to a Geek of the Week? Because yeah. I think I'm kind of done with Zero Year. Oh. Um, yeah, uh, so here's the thing. Scott Snyder. Uh, well, let me first say that uh, Greg Capullo, his art has been amazing and hasn't hasn't had a, a misstep since i've started reading the new 52 that batman that goes without saying mm-hmm. um and S- scott snyder with death of the family and court of owls are some of my favorite batman stories and uh at least the first part of the wake which i'm reading is also him they've been great but in the last i would say maybe since december or so i've noticed like a change in the writing I did talk to John a little bit about this earlier, but it, it's gotten excessively wordy. There are many monologues, many big scenes of dialogue that are very on the nose and you know very preachy in terms of the big ideas of what they're getting at. The first arc of Zero Year ended with this great Riddler cliffhanger, which I thought was a perfect teaser into like a big Riddler story. And this arc has disappointed me. Not only in that it's focused on this Dr. Death character that they're sort of reinventing for the new 52, but also in the fact that, like John mentioned, there was like a filler issue in the middle, and it's been, like I said, plagued by some of these very wordy scripts. And I just don't know... I'm not going to spend any more money on these $5 Batman issues until... Maybe a paperback or something because a trade paperback because you know spending this amount of money every week for something that isn't delivering on the promise that it had like two months ago. I, I don't I don't know why I'm reading this anymore. You know I don't know what the buzz is on Zero Year, but it's completely lost me. The first Red Hood arc was pretty good, but this this middle section completely lost me, and the fact that it's more expensive. And there seems to be a distinct change in the storytelling approach. It's so it's so disappointing too to have an artist as good as Greg Capullo, and the whole issue be like monologues and stuff. To, I don't I don't know what Scott Snyder is going for. He's good enough and has proved himself enough in in previous works that whoever he's working on will have my attention. But in terms of Zero a Year, I, I'm gonna wait. I think before I jump back in. Well, I'll keep you posted. Shrug. Keep me posted, John. Continue to describe them to me. I guess that could be my geek of the week because that was quite a rant. I think everybody hits that moment with with certain ongoing things where they're like, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to actually read this anymore, but I will have someone describe it to me. That happened to me with yeah. that happened to me with Naruto and our good friend of the podcast Ben. Naruto is is an example. I. I I have been known for saying on numerous occasions, Naruto would be so great if it weren't so horrible all the time. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> Ben reads the Naruto manga very thoroughly, constantly. And I, I've i given up on it many a time. And I'll say, Ben, just tell me what's happening. And that's how we'll... You know, I'm still curious, but I just, I just can't take actually sitting through it anymore. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it sounds like you may have hit that point. That's where I am. That's where I am. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. All right. So let's see. What have I been up to lately? I'll do two small things. One is uh, not media related, but I got a cat. Yay! (laughs) 
I'm pretty and excited she's about this cute. Cat. She's super cute. Her name is Juniper. I've never had a pet before, so you'll you'll forgive me for gushing. But she's, she's a very sweet cat. She constantly prowls around our apartment, and she's an older cat. But I think that was probably better for us rather than getting a very energetic kitten, because she does get a lot of alone time when we're out at work during the day. But yeah, I'm very excited about having a cat. I do all sorts of hilarious new pet owner things like. <laughs> How much am I supposed to feed you? Or you know, <laughs> all all that jazz. And it was a big relief when she came out of hiding when we first got her. Apparently, that's the thing that cats do yeah. very frequently. When you take them to a new place, they find a hiding spot and they go there for you know six to twelve hours, and then emerge when they are ready to uh, explore. So that that's very exciting. And the other thing is, I finally, finally, finally started watching True Detective. Oh, and I. Yeah, I gotta start that too. That's oh. it's it's so good. It's uh, Amen. I don't normally normally I have reservations. I try to analyze things, but True Detective is just so fucking good. Matthew McConaughey's character is the Abed of HBO badass. <laughs> like he literally, and I figured that out when I was watching the the fourth episode the other night. I was like, oh, that is why I like him so much. He is Abed. He That's is a hell of a description. Yeah. He's, he's, like, socially broken in the most appealing way possible. In a way that is incredibly endearing to any external audience, but you obviously would never want to spend any time with that person in real life. Well, that's not necessarily true for the character, Abed. It would be it would be fun to imagine stuff with him, but... Um, mm. Well, J Jeff, I'd be interested to know what your reaction is to the end of True Detective, which yeah. should have been my... Which should have been my Geek of the Week, along with three other things I've... <laughs> I remembered in in the course of this geek of the week, but uh, yeah, because I think yeah the the ending sort of plays against some of its strengths. Hmm. I'll leave it I'll leave it at that because obviously no spoilers. But uh, keep watching. But I want to talk to you about it more when you yeah, finish up. Uh, I'm I'm curious because I uh, I've only finished the fourth episode. The fourth episode is a hell of an episode. Some of the most impressive television I have ever seen in my life. It, it was like Alfonso Cuaron level of direction in in that episode. There's a shot that I'm sure people have talked about to death that's like five minutes long of pure ridiculous high intensity action. And I I cannot believe. Yeah, I think I think the internet mentioned it at some point. Yeah, the internet might have gushed <laughs> over that slightly at some point. That I might be several weeks late on it, but holy shit, is all I'll, all, all I'll say. Uh, John and Michelle, you guys should definitely uh, check it out. Especially given the fact that some of the material involved will be familiar to you. I well, will not say too much else beyond yeah. that. We've got to get through Breaking Bad for us. We're like three episodes in, and we're going oh. along at a snail's pace. So yeah, I know, just, I know, we're behind. Just, I know. No, I no, I would say just skip Breaking Bad and go to True Detective. Breaking well, Bad can. The only yeah. reason for that is that Breaking Bad is incredibly long, and True Detective is yeah, yeah, yeah. significantly shorter. Yeah, it's one season versus five. It's it's one se It's not even that it's one season. I think it's only eight episodes, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's eight episodes. Right. So it it's not even just that it's one season. It's that it's a relatively short season. So. It's one story. It ends. It's good. I want to finish it up pretty quick. I I have been actually. It's one of those things where like I go to work and I'm like, man. I could be watching more True Detective, <laughs> and I sit there and I dwell on it. I'm like, I'm like, really can't wait till I can get home. And in fact, even right now, I'm like, man, when this podcast is <laughs> I over, could be I, I could be watching more True Detective. Um, there was a moment during the Super Bowl in which I realized there would be no True Detective, and the Super Bowl just became a farce. Yeah. A sad, sad farce. It became a farce that then, uh, really. prevented yeah, me. <laughs> It just became a thing that was preventing me from watching more True Detective. Mm -hmm. So that's a hell of an endorsement. Yeah, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So highly, highly recommend that. So at this point, I want to give people an opportunity to make any shoutouts to let people know where they can find you online. Let's <clears> start with Rob. Rob, any shoutouts? Shoutouts. Uh, I'm going to shout out to Inside Lumen Davis, which is my second favorite Coen Brothers movie. Who didn't get a lot of love this award season. Or this podcast. Uh, or this podcast. Sometimes we don't have time and we have to make painful sacrifices. But I think it's awesome. It's my favorite movie of 2013. Everyone should watch it. 
and you can find me online <laughs> and on Twitter at Heroes Are Boring. Cool. Uh, let's move on to John. John, any shoutouts and where can people find you? No shoutouts this week. You can find me on Twitter at Draw the Story. All right, uh, Michelle, how about you? You can find me on Twitter at Tracing Rays. All right, I have a couple shout-outs because I haven't been on in a little while. Ooh. So, first off, I want to shout-out to Kyle for... Uh, Kyle! Being... Kyle! Because, <laughs> uh, Kyle, it was great to hear your voice. I uh, I really enjoyed listening to that episode. I want to give a shout-out to Kristen, of course, for not only being a magnificent, fantastic podcast editor, but for doing such a great job hosting last week. And let's see. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at uh, TisbyJeff. Uh, that's T-I-S-B-J-E-F-F. You can find this podcast at tisbycast.com, T-I-S-B for This Is Serious Business, cast.com, uh, along with Licks. Bleah. God. Licks. I, along licks. with Licks. We will provide you Licks. We will provide you Licks. <laughs> How many Licks does it take to get to the center <laughs> of our website? <laughs> Let's try that one again. Some Give fantastic licks. Have fun, Kristen. You can check out all our fantastic <laughs> licks. Uh, Along with links to our fantastic Tumblr, our Facebook. We have a MySpace? Probably probably not. Probably no. Not, no. No, we do um, not. Our Twitter yeah. and all that jazz. And as always, I have absolutely no idea how to end this episode. But uh, Shut the fuck up, Donnie. The heck you mean? <laughs> the heck you mean? <laughs> well, that about wraps her up. Sam Neal's, <laughs> Sam Neal's mustache is out of control. Fucking epic awesome. it gets, man. That is the greatest mustache. Sam Elliott. Sam Elliott, son of a bitch, Sam Neal's from Jurassic Park. Sam that Elliott. is correct, because yeah. I'm like, man, what a weird transition to Jurassic Park no. where Sam Neal did not have a mustache. <laughs> no, he did not. <laughs> Sam Elliott. <laughs> Got any more uh, of that sarsaparilla? What was that? <laughs> I dropped my pencil. Uh, did it sound like a? <laughs> did it sound like a crashing? It was. It was just appropriately timed. <laughs> Drinking a bottle of Jack. I thought the wall came down. <laughs> oh yeah. This is serious business. Yeah, that's a that's a good one there. <laughs>